Now this may be a, a surprise to all of you, but for the last few years, about three times a week, I go to the gym. And I work out in the gym, spend about an hour, hour and 20 minutes at the gym, three times a week. I go to one down by South High School. And one thing I've come to learn as I've been doing that the last few years is beginning of January, suddenly the gym will get crowded. Suddenly there'll be a lot of people there. And, I've, and it, you know, the first year I was in there, it got a little irritating. It was like, oh no, you know, it's going to be hard to get the machines you want and to work out here. But what I've learned, if I wait a couple of weeks, it kind of goes back to normal and all the machines are available again. Because we all know that this time of year, people start making their resolutions for the new year. I read an article from Time Magazine last year, and it was entitled, Promises, Promises, the 10 Commonly Broken New Year's Resolutions. Here were the 10. Number 10, drink less. Number 9, volunteer more. Number 8, be less stressed. Number seven, travel to new places. Number six, spend more time with family. Number five, get out of debt and save money. Number four, eat healthier. Number three, learn something new. Number two, quit smoking. So only about 15% of those who try to quit smoking remain cigarette-free six months later. And number one, lose weight and get fit. That's why it gets crowded for two weeks. The same article said that um, those people who set those resolutions and go after those goals, that by February 1st, only about 15% of those people are still pursuing those goals. Six months later, only about 8% of those people are still pursuing those goals. But the good news is that people who explicitly um, make New Year's resolutions tend to be kind of more goal-setting people. And they said those people are 10 times more likely to actually reach the goals they set than people who don't explicitly make New Year's resolutions. So it's actually kind of a good thing to be a goal-setting person, to, to be someone who sets your sights on something and works towards it, even if we don't always make it there. It's actually a good thing. So as I was thinking about the sermon today, I started looking through, in Scripture, some of these places where people kind of move into a new endeavor, where they step into something new and they're being challenged or encouraged as they walk into this kind of new thing. And started looking through various passages in Scripture where they're making those kind of transitions and they're being given words to kind of send them off into this new thing. The passage I landed on, Tim just read from 1 Timothy. And in a sense, this doesn't quite fit because it's not a completely new thing. Timothy is actually already in Ephesus this place where the Apostle Paul is now writing to him and he's telling him, now stay there. Thought you were going to leave, but now you need to stay there. And the reason you need to stay there is because there's some problems in this church and I want you to now enter into this new endeavor. Your work now is to bring health to that church that has gone astray in some ways. And then throughout the letter, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, again, as Tim mentioned, as his young protege, this one that he has mentored in ministry, and really, in some ways, is sort of a spiritual son to him, someone he's pretty close to. And he writes this letter to young Timothy as he's now being called to stay here and, and bring healing to this troubled church and gives him direction how to do that. He, he tells him some of the things, the content of what he's to teach. And he also tells him the life he's supposed to live with people, to be an example to them of the life that they should live. And so he starts giving them instruction in how to do that. And unlike most of Paul's letters, he doesn't start by, by being thankful for the things that are going well in the church. 
This time he delves right into the problems, and the problem he identifies is there are false teachers in this church. These false teachers were told a couple things about him. One of the main problems was they devoted themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Now, nobody's really quite sure what that means. What exactly was the content of this false teaching? That's all we know is myths and endless genealogies. Lots of people guess, but nobody's really quite clear about that. And really, I don't think Paul really is drawing our attention necessarily to the content of what they were teaching. Instead, what he says, here was the result of this false teaching, of this teaching that was an error. The result was was, their attention was being diverted to a whole lot of meaningless talk. What was at the center of everything they were talking about now was meaningless. just had no real value. And the other thing, it was causing lots of controversies and quarrels in the church. This thing that really was of no value had become the center of everything, and everybody was now fighting about it. It was just taking them away from what really mattered. Now, the thing that he said that their attention should have been on, the thing that really mattered, was there would be people who were about this purpose of love. Love, and he and even defines this love as a love that's rooted in a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's what they were to be about, and that got lost now in this the silliness, this foolishness of this false teaching that they were all spending all their time on. In many ways, I think in the letter, he kind of sets Timothy up as an example of, of what a godly life is to be. This is, this is an otherworldly way of living, an otherworldly way of thinking and being. And he contrasts that between these false teachers, this worldly way of living and being and thinking and acting. He says, here are two ways of going. Timothy, here's the way you're to go, this otherworldly way. The false teachers. Here's the ones who, what the teacher in Ecclesiastes talked about, life under the sun. Living life as if what we can experience with our physical senses is all there is. This worldly, of this world way of living. Timothy, be someone who lives with a bigger vision. A vision not just of this physical world, but of the world that's unseen. Of the spiritual world that is also just as much a part of reality. Live this otherworldly way. So, these false teachers, teaching about myths and endless genealogies, caught up in meaningless talk, quarrels and controversy. He goes on and he, when we get to the end of the letter in chapter 6, he kind of pulls attention back to them again and he sums them up and again kind of stands them in contrast to Timothy. And he says these false teachers, they're conceited, they're arrogant. They lack understanding of what Jesus has taught. They love arguments and controversies. They spend an inordinate amount of time and effort on things that produce nothing of value. And he says there are people that love money. That seems to be behind everything they do is this love of money. And then in the passage that Tim read, now comes the charge to Timothy. So Timothy, here's what you're to do instead. Don't be like them. Here's here's the otherworldly way of living, of life. And he starts in, if you look in your Bibles, chapter 6 and verse 11. He starts here but saying, but you, man of God, these men of the world, but you, you man of God, what are you to do? Flee from all of this. You don't enter into it. You don't bring change from within. You don't engage in it. Don't, don't get caught up in it. Flee from it. Run from it. Treat it as something dangerous. Get away from it. What's he to run from? He's to run from any teaching that doesn't agree with the sound instruction of Jesus. Get away from all of that. Make sure that you're focusing on that which Jesus instructed us in. 
Well, to do that, one of the things that's implied there is you have to know what Jesus instructed us in. You actually have to know the Word of God if we're going to focus upon those things. Remember several years ago, a guy that came here and spoke several times was Jerry Root. He's a professor at Wheaton College. And he spoke first, I think, at men's retreat and spoke on a few Sunday mornings. Uh, Jerry's kind of got a big personality. He's a guy that's high energy. And one of the things Jerry's known for is being an expert in the writings of C.S. Lewis. He has just invested an inordinate amount of time in the writing of C.S. Lewis and understanding those things. And Jerry was telling me once that about someone who came up to him and said to him that they were just in awe of his knowledge of C.S. Lewis. And they just wished they could be that kind of person who knew as much as he knew about C.S. Lewis. And they just, he was just, anything that you had to say about him seemed like Jerry had heard it and knew about it. And they wished they knew something like that. They could just have that kind of love for something. And Jerry said his response to him was, actually, it's really not that extraordinary. My knowledge of the writings of Lewis really isn't that big a deal. He said, a matter of fact, you pretty much spend every day reading, thinking about, studying, writing papers on somebody, and you do that over a long period of time, day in and day out. Guess what? You become an expert in it. It's really not that extraordinary. Put time into those things that you value, and you will, over time, know a lot. It's the same thing with if we, if we care about the sound instruction of Jesus, guess what we have to do? We have to day in and day out, every day, put some time in. It's not that, it doesn't require something extraordinary. We don't have to be these people who have this remarkable spiritual insight. We have to be people who listen to him, who pay attention to his words, who invest in it, who day in and day out continually go back to his word. And guess what? Those words become a part of you. Those words become rooted in you. They become a part of your very thinking and your language because you're always in his word. So run from that which doesn't line up with sound instruction. Instead, invest in the sound instruction of Jesus. And, and he goes on to say that you're to run from these this petty con controversies and this investing so much in foolishness. And in this case, what is actually false? Run away from that. Don't spend all your time in these petty things that people get caught up in and fight in these meaningless things. And I was thinking, why do we do that? Why do we find something that honestly is kind of meaningless, that doesn't really matter, and invest so much energy and time in it? Why do we do that? There's something that, that feels good about, about knowing something that I'm, I'm unique in, knowing something that, that I know that you don't know. I, I love to fight to be right, don't you? Don't you love that feeling of being right or knowing something somebody else doesn't know? It, feels, it makes me feel important when I know something you don't know. It makes me feel important when I can correct you in something and I can show you that I'm right. That's why we enter in sometimes these silly debates, and churches are known for that. You admit, we're known for picking the silliest things and turning them into controversies and quarrels and debates. Sometimes not false things, sometimes even true things, but we've, we've put them in a place they don't deserve. We make them the main thing, and they're simply not the main thing. And we'll fight over and argue over them because I have to prove I'm right. This last week, I was listening to a couple of talks from the TED conferences. I'm sure you guys have heard those at times. I was listening to one by this woman named Catherine Scholes. She's an American author, and uh, this was a talk from a few years ago. And she defines herself as the world's leading wrongologist because she has written a book on the value of being open to being wrong. 
It's a great talk. If you want to hear a great talk, look it up. Catherine Scholes on, on being wrong. Um, and in it, she talks about how in many ways we are kind of trained our whole life that if you're ever wrong, that means you don't have value, you know? And she puts up on the screen a, a paper that looks like a homework assignment that's been returned to an elementary school child. And on it, it's got all the little red marks, you know, where they've got some things wrong and has a C minus. And she asks the question, if you're sitting in class and the person beside you gets that paper and you look over and see their paper, what do you think? What do you think of them when you see them get that paper? Well, you may think they're lazy, irresponsible. You may think that they're just kind of a troublemaker, maybe not a very good person because, you know, they don't do that well. And over on the other side, you see the person who gets the A and none of those red marks. What do you think of them? Hardworking, responsible, a good person, maybe a valuable person. How, how many ways we decide that, you know, the real value of a person is when you raise your hand, you get called on and you had the right answer. You know what's really valuable? You raised your hand and gave the answer and it wasn't even the right answer the teacher was looking for. It was better. You gave them something they didn't even think of. Boy, you're important. You have value. As a pastor, I know it's one of the things I struggle with any time I teach, is that there's this temptation to be somebody who finds something new and unique in the passage that you're going to present. To be someone who has something that stands out that nobody else thought of. You know, and sometimes I'm almost tempted to create that even if it's not there. Because if I can create that, then, then I have value. Then somehow I'm important. Because I have that unique insight that I can fight for and debate for and get in controversy about. Sometimes I just fight to be right because it feels good to be right. Makes me feel important, doesn't it? Sometimes I fight to be right because um, if, if you can be on the same page as me, then I feel connected to you. Sometimes I fight with my wife to, to see that I'm right. I just don't understand why Lori can't always see that I'm right. And I fight for it. Sometimes I fight for it because if we're the same and it's the same place, then, then I feel closer to her. We feel connected. I would just prefer that sameness to be over on my side of the issue. And we can connect over there. Timothy, you're to be a man who doesn't fight to feel like you are right or to feel like you're important. Run away from those things. Don't let that be the Don't get caught up in controversies and debates and fighting for something that's really about you, about feeling important, about feeling like you matter. Instead, be about fighting for what's true. Instead, be about fighting for what actually serves the purpose of love. Put that at the center of things. He also says, Timothy, what else you run from? You run from the love of money. Um, you know, there's a lot of power. Not only comes from being the one who has knowledge. There's a lot of power that comes from being the one who has just material resources. Feels good. Feels like I have something to offer again. And, and he says, that's going to be a strong temptation, Timothy. Run from being the one who loves money. Don't let that be at the center of things. Uh, if you look in um, verse 11, if you look there, he says, not only are you to run from those things, but you're also to turn and run towards something. Run from this, this foolish controversies. Run from this love of money. What are you going to run towards, Timothy? Run towards righteousness, behavior that's pleasing to God in accord with his will. Run towards godliness, just godlike behavior. Run towards faith. 
There's trusting in God. Run towards love, sacrificing for the sake of others' best interests. Run towards endurance. Be one who day in and day out keeps on towards what is good and right. Run towards gentleness. Run towards using the tools of respectful influence versus the tools of power. Be someone who chooses those things instead. And then in verse 12, he says these words, fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, what are you to do? You're to be someone who fights like Either of these paths, if you pursue them, they require energy and effort. You, you can invest deeply in either path. Timothy, make sure that you're fighting, that you're investing in the good fight, the right fight, one that actually in the end brings the rewards you really long for. Fight the good fight. And the word fight there is a word that has this idea of continual action. It's not just this burst of energy. Keep in it. Stay in it for the long haul. Be someone who fights the good fight, stays in the fight, doesn't give up on the fight, invests in it. And the fight there, most believe, is probably, instead of talking about a war or a battle, he's probably more speaking here about an athletic contest. Stay in that fight. Stay in the struggle. Continue to work towards that prize, towards that goal that you've set before yourself. Don't give up on it. I was listening to a British pastor this week um, speak on this passage, and I loved one of his illustrations. He talked about the Christian life in many ways is like trying to go up the down escalator, you know? And going up the down escalator, if you want to get to your goal at the top, you've got to stay at it. Your effort has to be continual. You have to really put the effort into it. Stop and rest from the things of God for a moment, and guess what happens? You start going backwards. You really can't stop. You have to stay at it. Keep putting energy into it. Turn and walk away from God for a moment, boy, how quickly you go down, how quickly you move away from him. Stay in it. Don't give up. Continue in this fight. And then he goes on in verse 12 and says, Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. Take hold. And the take hold here probably has this already but not yet kind of implications. It's take hold, this eternal life you already have. Hold on to it. Don't let go of it. So stay in it. But also take hold in the sense that you're reaching for this prize the eternal life that's to come, the eternal life that's been brought and given to you through Jesus Christ, hold on to it. Let it be the thing that gives you strength and keeps you going. But keep moving towards it. Keep continually striving up that down escalator because at the top is that eternal life, the life that you truly long for, the life that you're made for, that God is going to bring to completion and you're going to fully know it's ahead of you. Don't stop. Keep moving towards it. I was thinking, um, as I read this, about a quote from Anton Chekhov. Actually, I was just talking with someone last week, and it came up. Quote, I like, said, any idiot can face a crisis. It's the day-to-day living that wears you out. And I thought, boy, that's true, isn't it? I, I think Paul is saying to Timothy here, be the person who understands the day-to-day struggle, the staying in it. That's the thing that takes real courage. That's the thing that takes energy even beyond yourself to be able to do. You know, jumping into a crisis for a moment, giving a burst of energy to something that you care about, almost anybody can do that. We can motivate ourselves for a moment. But staying in it, continuing on, that means that we have to reach beyond ourselves to be able to do that. The passage that I brought up many times is one of my favorites. is Jeremiah 17. In that passage, the prophet Jeremiah, as he's been telling the people of Israel, you are going to go into Babylonian captivity. It's going to happen to you. You're going to go into exile, and it's going to be a difficult, difficult time. And then he presents to them, you're going to have really two choices in how you face this difficult trial that's before you. 
And he uses this image of you can either choose a, a desert bush way of life. And the desert bush way of life, he says, is an is a, is a approach to life that depends upon human strength. It depends upon the resources that you can find within yourself or in the human beings around you. And that life is going to be like a desert bush. It's going to look almost dead. It's going to produce no fruit. It's going to have no color to it. It's going to just survive. That's all it's going to be. And so as you go into this harsh place, you can look only to your own resources and you can barely survive, maybe even die. Or there's another way of life he presents to him. And he uses there the image of this tree that's planted beside a river. And he says that tree reaches its roots deep. And it reaches out. It risks putting its energy into reaching out instead of looking within. And it reaches out and it finds the water that's available to it. And that water becomes its source of strength and nourishment. And that's what produces in it color and life and the greenness and the fruit. Because it looked beyond itself. The steady, staying at it, staying in the fight, continual every day, it will require us to look beyond ourselves. The little bursts here and there, I might find the energy within myself to do that. But to stay in it day and day, to continue to move towards the goal, I need help beyond myself to do that. I need to reach out if I want to find that kind of life and bring that kind of beauty to the world around me. If I want to be one who helps love grow, as Timothy is saying, this is what it's all about then I'm going to have to look beyond myself to make that happen. Stay in the good fight, Timothy. Hold on to the eternal life you've been given. Reach towards the eternal life that's before you. All of that that comes from Jesus Christ. And then I think Timothy gives us some instruction. One, he, he looks to motivation. How are you going to stay in this fight? What do you need to be able to remember to be able to do it? And then he just gives some practical advice. Here's, a, here's how to do it. Here's some things that you ought to do if you want to stay in the fight. So first, some of the motivation to stay in the fight. Look in verse 12 at the end. He talks about Timothy. You've made this, this good confession. You have made this confession, and I think he's probably talking there about um, the bap- his confession at his baptism, where he confessed Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord before others. He's saying, Timothy, remember you made that good confession, and you made it before many witnesses. Why continue in that good confession that Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Lord? He's the one in whom you put your hope. He's the one that's the center of your life. He's the one in whom you find strength and purpose. Why continue in that? Well, one, Timothy, because you made this confession before many witnesses. Guess what, Timothy? The choices you make affect others. They just do. Stay in this fight because when you back away, when you stand still, when you move in the wrong direction... Timothy, it affects other people with you. The the whole church's health is affected by that. Stay in the fight. Not only that, Timothy, you're not alone in this fight. Never meant to be alone. Paul writes this letter to Timothy not just to help Timothy help individuals grow in their faith. Paul is writing this letter because he loves the church. And he wants Timothy to invest in the church. And he wants Timothy to be one who helps the whole church become healthier. Paul cared about the church because Jesus Christ cares about the church. Because Jesus Christ loves the church. This solitary Christian life is not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to a life that says, Timothy, you made this confession before many witnesses. You're not in this alone. Remember that. Hold on to that. Cling to that. If you're going to stay in this fight continually, you need to be a part of that community and hold on to that community. You made it before many witnesses. And then he goes on in verse 13 and says, He also made this confession in the sight of God who gives life to everything. 
Timothy, the one who's with you, the one you confessed and the one who's with you right now, he's the one who gives life to everything. The one you're fighting to find life, you're fighting to find the life you long for, guess who possesses that life? It's God. You're not in this fight alone. The life giver, the creator, the one who's ruler over everything you see, this is actually his fight. You're just joining him. This isn't a fight you have to win by your own resources. You join the life giver in this fight. And then he goes on and says, And of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, Jesus, when standing before Pontius Pilate, was asked, Are you the king of the Jews? And his answer, Yes, it's as you say. Jesus Christ understands what it is to make that confession and the cost and the suffering and oppression that can sometimes come because of that uh, confession. The rejection that you sometimes must face when you make that choice. The one that you're going to enter this fight with, the one who is there with you, is one who understands, one who cares, one who's gone before you, and one who is now fighting that battle for you. Timothy, remember that when you enter this battle. You're not doing it by yourself. You do it with this cloud of witnesses. You do it with your God. You do it with one who understands. You're just simply not in this alone. If you hold on to that and remember that, if you every day pull back to that in some way, guess what? You'll find what the resources you need to stay in this fight. Don't do that. This is going to be a hard battle. I think we're going to end up sliding down the down escalator. We need that energy to be able to do it. And then he goes on and says, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. You know, this battle that you're staying in, you don't even have to worry about when the victory is going to come, when the end's going to be. You just don't have to worry about that. Because God already knows the ending. God is already in charge of the victory. The victory has already come, and the victory will come. The results are guaranteed. And he knows the right timing, just the right time, to bring that final conclusion. He knows when that's going to be. You just don't have to worry about it. You don't have to get discouraged because you don't see the end in sight. You just don't have to worry about it. Because this God who understands you, this God who has gone before you, this God who loves you, this God who's all-powerful and in charge of all things, this God knows the exact right time when Christ is going to come again and he's going to wipe away everything that has been perverted by sin and he is going to create that new heaven and that new earth that we so long for. He's in charge of that. All you have to worry about, stay in the fight. Don't give up. Keep on keeping on. And then he goes on and he draws his attention back to who's with him. This is who you fight this fight with and you fight this fight for. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. This is who the fight's about. One other thing I love about Jerry Root when he used to come here, every time I would see Jerry when he would show up, Jerry's first question to me is, are you loving Jesus? He would say it all the time. Do you love Jesus? Are you loving Jesus? Are you living like you love Jesus? One of the things, it would almost get irritating with him a little bit because he just would not let you take your attention off Jesus. That's what it's about. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get lost in all these silly, meaningless things. It's not that any other thing doesn't matter, but all of it matters only if it serves the central main thing, being one who promotes the cause of Jesus, the cause of love. If it's not serving that purpose, then why are you getting lost in it and wasting so much time in it? Always pull back to that. 
Then finally, I think he gives some just real practical advice. So what do you need to do to keep on keeping on in the good fight? How do you do it? Look in verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So, Timothy, command people to do a couple of things. Don't, don't put their hope in the riches of this present world. Don't, don't put your hope in the things that are kind of the currency of this world. Uh, and the currency of this world sometimes is human knowledge. The currency of this world sometimes is material blessings, material things. Don't put your hope in those things. Command people not to do that. And boy, that's easy to do, isn't it? When you dream about the life you long for, that life that, man, if, if only I had, life would be okay. What do you dream for? You know, a lot of times our mind runs to, if I just won the lottery, you know? Think of how my life would be different if I've just won the lottery. I could do a lot of good things. I could invest, I'd be free to do the things that really matter. And I'd get to enjoy a lot of really neat things. If I could just win the li- lottery, I would find the life that is truly life. That would bring it to me. And we all say, well, no, that's not real. I mean, the money would just allow me to do the things that really matter, right? But again, the hope is, if I just had the resources of this world, whether it be knowledge, power, money, if I just had more of the resources of this world, I could have the life I truly long for. It could purchase it for me. And he says, command them not to get lost in that, not to put your hope in those things. He says that wealth is a, is a pretty strong temptress. It tempts us to be arrogant, to again, put confidence in our own resources. If I can get money, then I can do what I really want to do. Be careful about that. And how do you, how do you work against that? How do you fight against that dangerous temptress? temptress. Well, here's his corrective. Instead of putting hope in these uncertain things, and, and we know those things are uncertain. Uh, for instance, knowledge. It was interesting, again, watching this TED talk by this Catherine Schulz. One of the things she said was, you know, we've had several of these TED conferences. People come here who are the brightest and the most insightful, and they're going to give us the ideas that are the new ideas that are going to change the way we approach life. And she said, then I've come and others came this year, and guess what? We have the new ideas that are better than those ideas and can tell you where those ideas were wrong, and these are the ideas that are going to bring you the life you long for. And guess what? In future conferences, they're going to tell you why we were all wrong, and they have the ideas that are going to give you what you need in life and long for in life. Knowledge is kind of uncertain, human knowledge. Wealth, we sure have reminders right now that it's uncertain that it's not a real stable foundation, that money can come and money can go. I think I mentioned before that one of my favorite films this year was a, a documentary called The Queen of Versailles. If you've seen that, it's just an interesting documentary. It's about a guy who, um, he was the timeshare king of the world, owned the biggest timeshare business in the world. And the reason the documentary was being made because it was about him building the largest house in the United States, this giant, massive, massive home they were building. And so the the documentary was really going to be about him building that home. But then the, the financial crunch happened, and money wasn't available anymore. They couldn't borrow the money they needed. What well, was a business that was dependent upon getting loans easily? And so his business crashed. He went from unbelievably rich to unbelievably losing unbelievable amounts of money very quickly. And whoever was making this documentary was like, payday. 
you know, it's going to be about a big house. Now I actually get to watch these people go from unbelievable wealth to the loss of unbelievable amounts of money and their business going under. And it's just watching this family and how they deal with it. How you went from what everybody in the world would say, that's the life. That's the people that have power, that have what everything this world has to offer. And how uncertain that foundation was. In a moment, with things that were completely out of their control, it could be taken away. Paul says, command them not to put their hope in these things that are uncertain, these things that are poor foundations. And then in verse 18 he says, command them instead to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Don't invest in these things that are about being important in the eyes of people in the world. Instead, invest in bringing good to your world. Invest in doing good deeds. That's where real life is to be found. Um, encourage them, command them to be generous and willing to share. Don't invest in getting more wealth. Invest in taking what you've been given and sharing it and being generous with others. Find your hope not in the things that this world says will bring you life. Find your hope instead in joining God in what he's doing. Being one who, who grows love. Bringing one who takes what he has and sacrifices for the sake of others. Being one who joins his purposes in this world. Because we are investing in this otherworldliness, this bigger story, not just in the one that our eyes can see. Be one who brings good to your world. Be one who's generous. Now, some people, I think, get lost in this discussion and they think that the important thing is living a simple life. That's what matters. You know, we're to love of money, root of all evil. You know, because you love money too much, it's evil. So, you know what real life will be found in is simplicity. And we promote that. And I think there's actually real value in simplicity. I think there's a lot good about it. But I don't think that's actually what Paul's saying here. He's not saying that life is to be found in simplicity. He's not saying... You don't find life in wealth. Instead, you find life in being content without wealth. What he's saying is you don't find life by putting your hope in the things the world can provide you. Instead, you put your hope in God. That's where your hope's to be found. Simplicity is a good thing. I have nothing against simplicity. But I'm saying sometimes we can turn that into the life-giving thing. You know what I mean? If I just live the simple life and can learn to be content with little, then I'll have the real life I long for, real happiness. Like that's not what he calls you to. The corrective here is not simplicity. The corrective here is generosity. Be someone who invests in others, who promotes love, who invests your life in love. I don't care whether you have a lot or have a little. It's what do you do with what you have. That's what matters. Do you love it or do you simply see it as a resource that you can use to serve what really matters, where real hope is to be found in the things of God and in, and in walking along with him and fulfilling his purposes? Is that where you're going to invest? Maybe simplicity comes out of that, but the focus is, again, upon Jesus, not upon what I can do to provide the life I long for all by myself. So invest in those things. Be generous. As I thought about our church, as I was reading through this passage, it was encouraging in a way, because one of the things I thought about us as a community, I thought, this is a church that I've always been impressed with the generosity of this church. I know we can do more. I know we can continue to encourage each other to keep walking up that down escalator. Um, but I am often impressed here with the generosity of people of this church, with people who seem to understand that is what it means to join God in what he's doing. Just a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned uh, the flooding in the Philippines and how the Boatos were trying to help people uh, with the flooding in their area. 
mention it one service, and I think like $2,600 came in that Sunday. I thought, you guys didn't even have time to hardly think about it, and like $2,600 was immediately given uh, that we were able to send off to them for flood relief, which is a pretty cool thing. A couple of weeks before that, it mentioned, you know, that we kind of started the Backstreet gift drive at a time when it was kind of a, you know, because of the way schedules have changed, that people weren't really here the first week we announced it, and we have a very short time to get all those gifts in from the time we get the names till the time they have to be turned in. So I think only a few people had actually signed up that first week for gifts. And we just simply got up here and said, got like 50 people still need gifts. Be nice if we had them. Not only were all 50 of them signed up, they were almost gone after the first service. People in second service were begging me for more names. Again, I love the generosity that's always been a part of this church. I hope, I hope we enjoy that. We remember that there's something good in that. And we fight to expand that, to be even more generous in giving people, to understand our hope is not in the stuff. Our hope is in joining God in what he's doing and growing closer to him, being more a part of his good purposes. That's what matters. The stuff is great, but what a wonderful thing that we get to use those resources to serve what we really hope in. Um, and then he goes on to Timothy. He says in verse 20, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Timothy, don't invest in, in wealth. Instead, be generous. Timothy, don't invest in this false knowledge, this human knowledge that people think is so important and will make them important and give them power. Instead, be one who invests in understanding and knowing the word of God Holding, up, holding it up, guarding it, and proclaiming it. Let God be the one whose, whose wisdom is held up before people as the source of life, not ours. Let the attention go to God, not to us. Be someone who makes sure people are finding life where life is truly to be found, in the God of, of God's, who is the God of his word. Again, as I thought about our church, I was encouraged. I think sometimes we always talk about what's wrong. I want to talk, there's some things that encourage me. One of the things that encouraged me, I thought, one of the things I've always loved about this church is I think the Word of God has always been incredibly, incredibly important here. Sometimes it is tempting to say, you know what, if we were a little more entertaining, people might be more attracted to that and more comfortable with it. And, and those discussions go on. What attracts people? What do people want to hear? But what I love is the conversations always come back to, but we want to proclaim the Word of God. We want the Word of God to be central to what we teach here. We want to make sure people are growing in their understanding and knowledge of God's Word because we believe life is to be found there, the way to life is to be found there. Now, we don't always succeed at that, but I believe that that's vitally important here. We can do better at it, but again, I believe that's vitally important here. And it ought to be important to every one of us individually. We've made this confession before many witnesses. The choices each one of us make as individuals affect the whole body. If we're to be a healthy church, if we're to be a church that as a community knows the life that is truly life, the part of each one of us matters. To be a generous people, to be people who invest in doing good, to be people who know and guard the word of God. Every one of us has a part in that and it matters if we're to be a healthy church. And in the end, being a healthy church matters because it's the bride of Christ. It's the one he loves. And we all have a part in making that, bright, that bride beautiful and pure, the, one that God, the way God wants it to be. So as you're making some resolutions this year, uh, I hope you do. I hope you make some resolutions. 
But as I looked through lists of common resolutions that people make, what struck me again and again was how self-centered most of them were. You know, they really are about of this world kind of goals. It was nice to see on there most of them included volunteering more and spending more time with family, so that was encouraging. But most of the goals were just pretty much about me, you know? So as you set some goals, resolve to do some things differently this year. I hope you'll consider resolve to do some things that pursue the life that is truly life, that invests in that. Be someone who pursues generosity. Be someone who pursues investing in God's word. Be someone who pursues knowing and understanding the ways and the things of God and joining him in doing good. Be one who puts love at the center, the love of God and the love that emanates from God. Be someone who puts the main thing as the main thing. Let's not get lost in these silly little things. In fact, when you find yourself arguing and fighting about things, stop and ask yourself a question once in a while. Is this really the fight that's the main thing? Because I think Paul is actually calling Timothy to debate some things. He's, not telling him, he's actually telling him to tell some people they're wrong, to enter into confronting some people with error. So he's not saying there's never a time to, to invest in a battle, even about beliefs. But he, but he also tells Timothy, make sure that that is motivated by love. So even when we enter into a controversy, let's ask ourselves the question, is this simply about lifting me up, me feeling right, or me feeling important, or me feeling like what I say is valued? Or is this about directing people to Jesus Christ, and is this about promoting his love and his purposes? Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I am thankful um, that this walk that can sometimes be a very difficult walk, um, this good fight that you call us to, that you also give us every resource we need to stay in this fight. Lord, I pray we would remember uh, that we're not in it alone. I pray that we would, as a community, truly support and encourage one another to keep our focus on the things that truly matter. Lord, I pray that we would remind each other often in our worship and in our words and in our, even our behavior that you really are the one who's at the center of everything. That, that we don't walk this walk alone, we walk it with the God of the universe, the King of kings, the ruler over all rulers, the one who holds eternity in his hands. And Lord, we're thankful uh, that we don't walk this alone, that we walk with someone who understands, who has suffered with us, who knows the difficulties that we sometimes are asked to walk through, who has at times experienced aloneness and rejection uh, because you have honored and obeyed the Father. I pray, Lord, that we would find strength and encouragement in you. In your blessed name, amen. Thanks, John. Uh, would you please stand?